Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer, and I've worked in the animal health industry. And prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician as they share their own directions, their interesting career decisions, what's worked, what hasn't, and how they make it all fit. Thank you for joining me today as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the profession we love. Today, we get to chat with Garnetta Santiago, a New York State licensed veterinary technician and the manager of academic and professional affairs for Zoetis. She is also president of the New York State Association of Veterinary Technicians and serves on advisory boards for several veterinary technology programs nationwide. Welcome to the show, Garnetta. Thank you. It's Good great to, talk to have with you. Kim. You as well. Thank you. So, Okay, so I just described what you do at Zoetis. Well, I explained your title, but my understanding is you work with colleges of veterinary medicine, you work with veterinary technology programs in the U.S. and the Caribbean, and you manage the educational well-being and professional development outreach program to the profession. Um, Tell me more what you do. So I'm responsible for making sure that um, Zoetis is support of um, the early veterinary, early career veterinarians and veterinary technicians um, reaches them. Basically, we do this through a couple of different channels, social media channels, as well as um, a particular website, VetVance. Um, but we also do this through programs that Zoetis has in place, our educational alliance program, um, our commitment to veterinarians. And so it's through these multiple channels that we're able to really support the profession on a couple of different levels. That describes what you do today. And I think already there's a lot to unpack with that and in terms of what you do right now. But, you know, what's interesting is that there were a lot of life experiences before today. Um, Prior to to Zoetis, you worked for Hills Pet Nutrition in a managerial role. Uh, You were an adjunct instructor at the State University of New York, Ulster County. You have many years of clinical experience practice under your belt. And here's the gem is that you have a poli sci degree from Syracuse University and then a master of arts degree in international relations from Rutgers. I'm curious what happened. (laughs) I finally woke up and followed my pursuit or pursued my love of of veterinary medicine. I have always, always, always had um, a strong interest in politics and governance and the way countries get along. And so, uh, but I've also always had a, um, a strong love of animal science and veterinary medicine. So when I graduated uh, high school, I decided the path of least resistance was to follow political science. And so I got my degree in, in uh, my bachelor's degree in uh, political science from Syracuse. And then, of course, when you graduate with a political science degree, you have two options. You either go to grad school and get an additional degree, degree in political science, or you go to law school. And I was not interested in law school. So uh, I um completed my master's degree in international relations. And then I went to work on Wall Street. I worked in financial publishing um, and in the ratings industry. But that love of veterinary medicine had never really abated. It really had always pulled at my heartstrings. And at one point in my life, I actually thought that I had missed the boat, that that this was something that I could not um, pursue. 
Um, and as you can imagine, working in the ratings industry or financial publishing in New York City kind of is a dog-eat-dog world. And I woke up one day and I realized if I'm going to get bitten by something, it should have four legs and, and fur. And so I made the, <laughs> I made the leap and I, I found the courage to pursue veterinary medicine, but I wasn't quite... Um, I hadn't really bought into the notion of a four-year commitment and uh, several hundred thousand dollars of financial commitment to going to veterinary school. And so I started shadowing at the practice where I took my own cats. I'm a cat person. Um, And what I discovered that I did not know prior too, was that the veterinary technicians were actually having the experience that I had long wanted. I always thought I wanted to be a veterinarian until I met a veterinary technician. And that was when I decided it is now or never. And I said goodbye to financial publishing and took a very big leap of faith and enrolled in vet tech school. Wow. That's an incredible story because there's some really interesting things you said about finding courage and it was like now or never. What were the waters like when you were in that key juncture of deciding to go vet tech and leave the financial world? What was going on in your head? Veterinary medicine never really left my blood. It never really would leave me alone. Um, was sort of a wake-up call that, you know, you are not tied to a life of following a paycheck. You really do have a finite number of years on this earth. And if you don't put um, at least an effort into following some things that really make you alive, that really you know sort of resonate with you, then it's not going to be a, a life fulfilled. And so, um, you know, we obviously looked at some of the logistics, my husband and I, um, and decided this was this was worth pursuing. This was worth pursuing. What I went in expecting the outcome to be is has actually been nothing like what it has actually been. So I'll say that, you know, what I understood veterinary technology and the opportunities in veterinary technology to be when I was in school have actually turned out to be a small percentage, a very small percentage of what veterinary technology has been for me. You said something very interesting in that clinical practice was such a small little percentage of what you could do as a veterinary technician. So how did you know even an instructor position was available, existed? So there was a little bit of a circuitous route from the time I uh, left uh, practice and began teaching. And it all really started with a conversation that I had with someone uh, while I was a freshman in tech school. A, A speaker came to visit our school from Hills Pet Nutrition to do a nutrition presentation. And it was a rather long presentation. It was about three hours long. And we had a huge exam the very next day. So I knew I really couldn't stay um, and for the entire duration, but there was something about this individual that, that just, it, I just kept hearing a voice saying, you have to go introduce yourself, just go and get this person's business card. This is someone who you need to know. And I couldn't shake that feeling. So at intermission, I went down and I introduced myself to her and she gave me her card and I wrote her an email the very next time, the very next day. And we started a, um, sort of a, a communication, started a relationship, um, via email and every time she would come to campus to do a presentation, I always made sure to book time with her. Um, And we would meet for coffee. 
and I'd bring a, li- a list of questions. And, you know, I felt like I wanted to really take advantage of the fact that she was there and I can pick her brain because what I was trying to figure out was how to navigate balancing this newfound veterinary education with all the professional experiences I'd had before, because I was definitely a, what they call a non-traditional student. I wasn't 18. Um, I had already had a couple of degrees under my belt. And so I was coming in as an adult learner, pretty much in a sea of very young, young learners. And once I graduated um, tech school, I began working. And um, one of those, it was one of those sort of life altering events that really brought me to uh, consulting with Hills as a, working with Hills as a consultant, and then ultimately into academia. And that was shortly after I graduated, I found out that I had stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I had been working with animals regularly. And um, because I had to start chemotherapy and all of the, the medical intervention, I really wasn't in a position where I could be around animals on a regular basis. Well, one day, shortly after I had, as I was completing chemotherapy, um, I got a phone call from that individual, sort of out of the clear blue sky. And she says, I have an opportunity for you to come work with us. Um, you would work in the, you'd be uh, a consultant and you'd be focused in the Northeast because I do live in New York. And what you'd be doing is going to vet tech programs across the Northeast and doing presentations on small animal clinical nutrition. Are you interested? And before she could finish the question, I'm like, of course I'm interested. <laughs> I love nutrition. Um, I have always been, you know, an advocate for, um, you know, preventative medicine through nutrition. And it was it was right in my wheelhouse. And so that began, um, that started sort of uh, opening my eyes to just sort of the realm of possibilities for education for veterinary technicians uh, and veterinary technician educators. Um, one of the schools that I was asked to go to and speak at is located 20 minutes from my home. So I had gone in and I'd done a couple of presentations and the program director reached out and she says, hey, would you be interested in teaching the course and I'm, the nutrition course? And I'm thinking, sure, of course. I'm thinking, I know dogs and cats. I can teach this. She goes, but it also includes production medicine. <laughs> so I had to learn <laughs> nutrition oh for goats and nutrition for cattle and nutrition for equine. Um, but that... That was the start. I think I, I was with the, the university for about three years uh, in that capacity and uh, then grew to teach additional courses. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I loved experiencing. I love being at the place where students come in and they're not quite sure what this means. And then they get it. That aha moment, as I guess Oprah calls it. Um, being at the crux of that, that intersection between not knowing and then finally getting it. I, it was like a rush every single time. So education and teaching um, has always been, especially in veterinary medicine, has really been uh, a highlight of, of my professional journey here. I mean, this is incredible because you were hit hard with a medical condition and that kind of forced you to to be like I I have to change. You know, I can't be in this environment anymore. And then, you know, as as they say, it's like there's no such thing as a bad decision. It's just a different decision. It's like it just opens another door. And for you, this was like aha, as you said. <laughs> you know, you get a lot of feelings. You feel it inside. Yeah. Just 
with where to go. It's an intuitive thing. I'm much more intuitive than analytical. I have professional friends and I have personal friends who they need to see the entire road mapped out in front of them. They need to know what's at stop A, what's at stop B. And for a very long time, I lived my life that way. And I recognized that um, some things just can't always be logically explained. It's an intuitive thing. That was a big part of my decision to to accept that opportunity uh, and work with them as a as a consultant. I keep coming back to how would you know that these opportunities exist? I got to tell you, one of the things that I'm learning and that I've learned over my 16 years in veterinary medicine is that this profession is two degrees of separation. How do you know about opportunities like this? You simply talk to people. I'll tell you that the the day that that speaker from Hills came to speak at our school, it was November 1st, 2001. I'll never forget that day. Seven years later, she decided that she was going to retire. And she said that I should apply for her position. And I thought, oh, no, I'm not qualified. I'm not smart enough. I, I could never do your job. And um, the, the company is located in Topeka, Kansas, and I lived in New York City. And I'll never forget walking into I was speaking at a college in New York City and I walked into the classroom and she was there. And I had given her 50 million reasons why I shouldn't apply for her job. And I didn't know she was going to be in the class that day. And I said, what are you doing here? She goes, I came to tell you in person that you're going to apply for my job. (laughs) So I thought, okay, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? Long story short, went through the application process and um, I was the successful candidate and I ended up getting her job. So, you know, I go back to my point about talking to people. It was that seemingly innocuous conversation that I had with her um, the night they came, the night she came to speak at our college that landed, you know, all those years later to me accepting her position on the exact same, on the anniversary of the day that I had met her. Now, among all the things that we've talked about already on what you do, um, you're currently completing the certificate program for diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine through Purdue. I'm curious as to this program, Were there events in your life that personally affected you to pursue this program? There were. Actually, this was something that was, to me, it was sitting in plain sight, but I wasn't aware of it. I'll go back to a time when I was a consultant for Hills, and I was speaking at a college in Pittsburgh. And I walked in, and there's, you know, 50 students or so. And one of the students was African-American. And she comes up to me after the class, and she has her mom on the phone. And she's saying to her mom, Mom, we just had this great speaker, and she's black. And I remember looking at her thinking, what does that got to do with anything? Like, I don't get, I didn't get what the issue was, like, why that was, like, newsworthy. I'll put it that way. And then I I look back over my professional career, and I, I realize that our profession as rich and robust as it is, really does not reflect the demographics of our country. And for young people, especially children, who want to, who aspire to a particular profession, it's very difficult to envision yourself in that profession if you don't see yourself represented in that profession. And I, I felt that being able to explore this on a deeper level and really understand, um, you know, the sort of the cultural competencies that are necessary, I think, critical to the survival of, of veterinary practice, especially in, you know, when we're dealing with like um, small animal practice and um, particularly um, 
the cultural competencies that are needed, given the changing demographics of the country, are going to be key. We want people to, you know, continue to bring their animals to practice. We want, you know, people to take advantage of preventative care. But the same way I, I came to understand that young people who don't see themselves represented in a particular profession tend not to engage with that profession, that could also happen with clients. If you live in an area where, you know, a particular language is uh, the predominant language, but you go to services where they're not speaking your language, you're not likely to um, frequent those those services. And so recognizing that, you know, as it's true for every profession, we want to continue to grow and be representative and um, really connect with the demographics around us. I thought that this this uh, program was a great one for me uh, to enroll in. One of the things that sort of come out of me learning more about cultural competency, and I have not yet completed the, the certificate, but the understanding and the, the, the need for me to teach this to veterinary technician educators and veterinary technician students. Um, you know, and I am a licensed veterinary technician in New York State, and I remember when I was in tech school, it was two solid years of incredibly robust and packed full of didactic information. And so there are certain sort of soft skills, I say that with air quotes, that programs really don't have the time to teach. You have a two-year limit, you have a ton of information that needs to be conveyed um, as per the accreditation guidelines. And so there oftentimes isn't a lot of space for, you know, teaching cultural competency or teaching um, culturally uh, sensitive communications. And those are going to be key to the successful you know, practitioner, whether it's a veterinarian or a veterinary technician. And so I've had the opportunity to teach cultural competency and navigating cultural competencies in veterinary medicine to um, several audiences. And I think it's been pretty impactful. Was there anyone in your life that you had that experience with where you were like, you know, she does all this and she's African-American? When I was in tech school, I had an internship and I met a veterinarian at one of the practices that I was working and she had that impact on me. I didn't really share that with her at the time because as an intern, you're kind of like a deer in headlights and, <laughs> you know, every beeping monitor is, <laughs> oh my gosh, is this dog turning blue? Or, you know, should I have this conversation with her now? Or should I, you know, address the, the dog in the cage? Um, so I never... I never had that conversation with her, but I was impressed. She had she had a diverse background uh, in terms of her professional trajectory, and some of the things that she was doing in practice really, really impressed me. I, I think if I had an opportunity to locate her again today, I'd probably have that conversation. You know, when we're talking about success, you know, you're president of a of a New York State organization of veterinary technicians. How, why are you involved on that level? I, I think that, you know, our profession is one where we all have an innate leadership skills. It's how we activate them. Um, one of the most important aspects for me of being a veterinary technician is giving back to my profession. And uh, I'm a strong advocate for um, organization at the state level. One of the challenges that we face in veterinary medicine is that from one state to the next, our credentialing may be different. In New York State, we're licensed veterinary technicians and other states uh, technicians are certified or registered. Um, but because the, the issues that affect New York State, New York State licensed veterinary technicians can sometimes be unique to New York State, one of the things that I um, was passionate about for a very long time was doing my part to help protect our scope of work, to protect our, our practice, um, and to ensure that we're represented as we should be on the veterinary healthcare team. And so several years ago, a member on the executive board asked me to consider office, and I thought, nope, not going to do it. 
<laughs> I'm not, I'm not, again, the same conversation. I'm not equipped to do that. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, let the technicians of New York state down. Um, but then again, I took that leap of faith and I became a district rep for the area that I live in New York state, the mid Hudson Valley. Um, and then just sort of the progression, um, of my time with the organization and the opportunities that opened up, I ran for vice president um, and then succeeded the president into the presidency. So I'm finishing out the second year of my first term now. And I'll tell you that, you know, I've done, I've been involved with a lot of things in this profession, um, but serving the technicians of New York state has absolutely been a highlight because through our outreach, through the, the interaction that we have with technicians around the state, we're able to, you know, have really, really have a pulse on issues that are affecting, that may be affecting technicians in one corner of the state that are not affecting technicians in another. And it gives us an opportunity to address those things. And New York, as you can imagine, is a huge state. Um, and issues uh, in one corner may have absolutely nothing to do with issues in another corner. Um, but sort of setting out, helping, working with our executive board and charting a path that really is designed to address in issues from a multifaceted perspective has been so incredibly fulfilling. Um, you know, we have our, our board consists of technicians who have been in a profession 20 plus years and technicians who are, are um, greener than that. Um, but our experience spans the gamut from, you know, clinical medicine, emergency medicine, academia, industry, that sort of thing. And uh, it's really been a fulfilling thing. I am so incredibly proud of um, the strides that New York State vet techs have made. Um, the protections that we have and, and doing everything I can to ensure that those protections may remain intact um, has really been professionally and personally fulfilling. Wow. I love my You're state. <laughs> I would like to know, you know, if someone is interested in organized in an association. So how, so, so if you just like want to just experiment with it. How would someone do that? Reach out. Everybody has a, a website. Everybody has a Facebook page. Everyone has uh, emails. And so, the, I mean, thanks to the invention of Google, there's nothing that we can't find. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, um, if you are a technician or even a veterinarian and you're not involved in your state VMA or your state vet tech association and you're interested or you have concerns or you feel that you're not being representative, absolutely reach out to that organization. Well, the other theme I'm, I'm hearing through our, our chat, Garnetta, is giving, giving back. Giving, 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 giving. There's a lot of giving going on. There's a lot on. of giving. So the the thing I have to ask you, though, is when we talk about work, work-life work integration, you're married, you have a daughter, mm-hmm. you are you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> how do you how do you make it all fit? You know, how, does it, it's, it's, how does it work? It depends on what day it is. It depends sometimes on what hour in the day it is. Um, I remember a long time ago, um, I think I was in grad school, and seeing a, um, a show on television about work-life balance. It was like Phil Donahue or something crazy like that. That's how old I am. It's Phil Donahue. <laughs> um, and they were talking about work-life balance. And um, I remember the, they used the term the mommy wars. And I thought, that's a really, that's a really bad thing, right? Because work-life balance, one, isn't something that's unique only to women who work outside of the home. And even women who work within the home, you know, it's possible to not have this balance. And one of the things that um, I experienced was I used to beat myself up a lot. 
you know, oh, I can't be there to see, you know, her tire shoe for the first time, or oh, I can't be at this conference, and I really need to, you know, sit in on this session. I, how I understood work-life balance to be was, it, it doesn't exist. And so part of the problem was that I was recognizing that there was this arbitrary benchmark for what work-life balance represented, and I kept falling short. And then I recognized that's because work-life balance is a moving target. It looks like different things for different people. And literally for the same person, it can look like five different things given the day. So work-life balance can be one day. 80% 80% work and 20%, you know, non-work things. And sometimes you have to make the executive decision that I need a 90% non-work life. I need a 90% non-work life day. And that is the key to regenerating yourself, for me at least, in order to be able to face the things at work. So once I let go of sort of an arbitrary notion of what work-life balance was and accepted that from one day from the next, you know, while I'm the same person, I may have different priorities or I may have different feelings or I may have different needs from one day to the next. And if I don't give myself the space to give myself what I need, then I'm not going to thrive. I have spent many an early Sunday morning before church doing work, non-housework. So, you know, things related to to my profession. Um, And I've also made many executive decisions at two o'clock on a Wednesday to shut it all off because I was fried. So what it basically means for me is, Looking at all the, you know, the sort of horizon of priorities that are out there. One, as long as nobody is turning blue, that's the, that's the first benchmark. <laughs> no one's bleeding, no one's blue. <laughs> um, determining what really is urgent and what really can wait until I'm in a better either mental space or have had more rest or have actually had lunch or, you know, that thing. So um, I've given myself to the, the permission to redefine this work-life balance for me. It's all just kind of a big soup at this point. I understand, too, that even the idea of work-life balance isn't even, like, appropriate anymore. Because when you talk about balance, Mm -hmm. you think of maybe like a scale. One has to go down for the other one to go up, vice versa. When really what you're talking about is, you know, on a daily basis, you're integrating. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's prioritizing and so forth. And on your non-work time, is that, does that also include Garnetta time or is that just daughter time, husband time, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) I need more Garnetta time. I had a conversation with my daughter just yesterday in the car. Um, I needed to go shopping and and she, my husband was going to go home. This was after church. And she was telling me that she wanted to come with me, but she felt bad for daddy. And I said, well, daddy's going to go home and watch football in a house full of no noise. And so you really shouldn't feel badly for daddy. You know, you're not robbing him of, of Lauren time. But I explained to her, you know, every one of us, even you at 11 years old, sixth grade at 11 years old, you need time to yourself. You need time to listen to the voices in your head or listen to the birds outside or watch the stream go by or do nothing. You can, you know, play with your fingernails. You can, you need time to do that. And I said, that's true for mommies as well as daddies. Um, and it doesn't mean that I don't love you. doesn't mean that I don't want to be with you. doesn't mean that, you know, I don't want to be around you. It's just that I need some space for myself. And so I am, we, in a, the area of New York state where we live, there's this, uh, it, there's a, a suspension walkway bridge. It's called the walkway over the Hudson. It's the longest suspension walkway bridge, I believe in the country, maybe in the world. I'm not sure. Um, 
but I will jump in my car and I'll drive to that bridge and it'll be 12 degrees outside, but I have gloves and I have a hat and I have a jacket and I'll put my earring, my earphones in and I'll walk that bridge. It's uh, two and a half miles there and back. And sometimes that's all I need. That's all I need mm-hmm. to just reset and look at the river and look at the Catskill mountains and just reset. So, um, you know, people say, what do you do for a hobby? I'm thinking, I don't know, laundry. <laughs> I don't necessarily have <laughs> hobbies per se, um, but I do try and find something each day to just reset myself. Did it take you many years to figure this reset out or or did you kind of know from, you know, your 20s that you this is what you need to do. I wish I had learned it in my twenties. I probably have fewer gray hairs. (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm finding that this is a lesson I have to learn over and over again. Um, Mm -hmm. I remember um, making a career shift um, and 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 making the the statement that I am never going to, you know, put 110% of myself in work again. I'm not going to do that. That's not good for me. And then you're on to the next professional journey and you find yourself putting 120% in. So one, never is a dirty word. So never say never. Um, But being able to recognize it sooner than I did in the past and say, wait a minute. Okay, I see prior patterns, raising their ugly head. It was not a good ending. This is not who I want to be. And pivoting is absolutely critical. You have to be able to, you know, get to the place where you have introspection enough. And introspection can be scary sometimes because, you know, in the process of understanding who you are, you might discover some things that you don't necessarily like about yourself, but it's still necessary, even though it can be dangerous. It's still necessary for you to look inside and say, does this really resonate where, where I am right now, what I'm doing? Does this really resonate with who I authentically am? And if it's not, then finding the courage to either pivot, make some changes, or figure out a way to make it work so that it does more closely res- you know, resemble what you want to be. And when you talk about pivoting, you know, I, I, through this conversation, I'm thinking too, you know, what, what would be one critical skill that you'd say that a a new veterinary technician needed to have to be successful? Self-awareness is key. You can learn when you graduate tech school, you can be, you know, you, you have graduated technician school, you have um, clinical adeptness, you can place a catheter. I'm fond of saying you could place a catheter at 50 yards. I mean, you know how to do the medicine part of it, but a lot of technicians I'm finding are graduating without um, a level of self-awareness that really needs to go hand in hand with that clinical aptitude. And so self-awareness, I think of self-awareness is not necessarily, not solely being knowing what you want, but also knowing what you don't want. I have worked in practices where, you know, I walked around thinking I'm the newest person here and I am the most professional of people who've been here 25 years and understanding that this is not an environment that I want to be in. And it's okay because I think a lot of technicians graduate and they kind of feel like you have to pay these dues. You know, this is, you know, you're the new person. So you kind of have to, to take it. Um, Maya Angelou, the, you know, the great Maya Angelou, God rest her soul, um, once said that, um, you, we are constantly teaching people how to treat us. She says we are at every interaction, we're teaching people how to treat us. And so if you are in a situation where people are disrespectful to you, um, you know, professionally on a personal level, if they really um, are not appreciating your value to the veterinary healthcare team and you continue to stay in that environment, you've basically given them carte blanche to continue treating you that way. 
Yes, and it and it ties back to what you were saying earlier about the ability to pivot. And nothing is nothing has to be that way forever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, your career is a proof of that. That. You can just keep changing Mm -hmm. and changing and changing. And as you said, it sounds like as long as you have that key skill of self-awareness, knowing what you want, knowing what you don't want, leads you to, I imagine, a pretty happy, successful life. I think I'm doing okay. (laughs) I think I I can say, you know, I am in a better place today than I was 12 weeks ago, 12 months ago. Um, 12 hours ago. The other piece of advice I'd give a new technician is it is totally okay to not know everything. I gave myself a lot of grief over, oh, Garnetta, how could you not know this? How could you not know that? How can you expect yourself to know something that you're not even supposed to know? And so it took a long time with for me to learn how to be okay with not knowing everything. Um, And recognizing that, you know, there are people in the profession who I would look to as experts or, you know, they were touted as experts. Um, And remembering no one was born that way. Everybody had a pathway to get to know to the place where they know what they know. Um, And each and each of us as individuals have the same thing. So being okay with not knowing everything um, is important because it opens you up to learn. It opens you up to accept that you don't know everything. And here's an opportunity for learning and growth. That's really hard. I mean, as I remember starting off, you know, when I graduated uh, veterinary medical school, feeling like I had to know everything. So, you know, basically what you're saying is let yourself accept it that you don't know everything and you're going to learn. Yeah. I, I printed out something actually yesterday from my daughter. She's 11, but but she's a pretty smart kid. Uh, it was something I'd come across in a magazine, and it said, the biggest, the greatest mistake you can make in life is being afraid, being constantly afraid of making one. And I thought, well, that's a really big thought. That's a really big concept. Um, but it really is applicable to all of us. If you live your life afraid to make a mistake, then you'll never make a step. And then how will you grow? How the how you contribute to the profession? How will you you know reach your dreams? How will you you know move beyond your comfort zone? So not being afraid to make that mistake, you know, doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think you've said that you know earlier in our in our conversation we were talking about fear, how fear can really get in the way of doing what you want to do. So just as you're saying here, being afraid, the fear will prevent you from never making that step. But if you remove that out of the way, it allows you to walk. Be afraid and do it anyway. Do it scared. Garnetta, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've learned a ton. (laughs) I I feel enlightened. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. This was fun. This concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetVance at www.vetvance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetVance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We would love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. 
We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat. <laughs>